Exodus chapter 17 says this, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. I think they call that Las Vegas now. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So as we're jumping back into this series, we haven't been here for a little while. Jumping back into this series, uh, this account of Israel's uh, wilderness journey. I was tempted to say wilderness wanderings, but the fact is, as we just read, it's not a wandering uh, because the account of Moses tells us clearly that they were being led by the presence of God, right? So they weren't wandering. Just, I mean, we kind of say that sometimes in church. Just drive that out of your head. They're not wandering. They are being led by the, the very presence of God and by the command of the Lord, Moses says, and they come to their seventh stop on this journey, Rephidim. Now, it's clear all the way through the exit account that the Lord has been in full control, that he's demonstrated his ability to meet every need of his people. From campsite to campsite, he has led them on this uh, journey of faith that was designed to teach them about his ability to provide, about his ability to meet every need. And most recently, if you were here three weeks back, we were in Exodus uh, chapter 16 when we were in part of this series. And we, we read the account and went through this story as God rained down bread from heaven. Food, food from heaven. In the evening, he sent the quail. And in the morning, he sent the manna from heaven. And as they're there in the desert of sin and the cloud of his presence picks up and begins to move again. Uh, two to three million tenters. <laughs> like, man, what a lot of work, eh? Two to three million tenters begin to fold, thing up, fold things up, fold up camp, and follow the presence of God. Now, there's not any great, you know, if we just kind of consider what's going on here, there's not any great gap or space of time between Exodus chapter 16 and 17. You got to keep that in your mind. It's not like a month has gone by or any of this sort of stuff, okay? The, the cloud of the presence of God had, had picked up and began to move, but it was routine as usual in the camp of the Israelites. And that looks like this. In the morning, they got up, they came out of their tents, and they experienced a miracle. Like they had the day before, and the day before, and the day before, and the miracle was this. There was dew on the ground, but on the dew, something formed that was like a wafer, and they called it manna. And they went out, and they collected uh, their food for that day. It was the same miracle of provision that they had experienced the day before, this wafer-like substance, the bread from heaven that formed on the dew. And each person could go out and gather as much as they wanted or as little as they wanted, and that was the routine for 40 years. Every day, except for the Sabbath. So that morning, they come out of the tents. They go and they collect their food. And the cloud of the presence begins to pick up and move. And so the children of Israel begin to pick up and pack up camp and roll out in their divisions after the presence of God. Now, according to the command of the Lord, Moses says, they were led to Rephidim. And it's important that we see that God is leading them to this place. It's not a wandering. Every single time, God is leading there. 
The name Rephidim means this, resting place. Isn't it awesome when God leads you to a resting place? It's so awesome when the Lord leads you to this place where it's like, okay, no need to strive here. No need to work here. Let's, let's just rest. Jesus did that for his disciples, right? We read that in Matthew chapter 15 and 16 after a busy time of, of ministries, uh, season of ministry, he grabbed the 12 and he said, let's come away with me by yourselves for a little while. And the gospels tell us that it was in that time that Jesus led them to that, that place in Caesarea Philippi where he taught them this message. He taught them uh, that he was the rock and that upon the rock, the church would be built and that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Jesus said this. I, th I think he was pointing to himself, you know, as he said it in Matthew chapter 16, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell uh, shall not prevail against it. And so though Jesus had led his disciples to this place of rest, there was still no less a lesson to be learned in the place of rest. There was something that God wanted to teach. And though the children of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim, this resting place, it was no less a place to uh, grow, a place to learn, a place to experience new lessons of faith. And so they pitched their tents there at Rephidim, but there was a problem. <laughs> no water. No water. Now every, every, I mean, this has happened to every single one of us, you know. You go, oh, I'm so thirsty. Oh, look, there's a fountain. And you head to the fountain. It's often the one right out here. <laughs> and you lean down and you stoop over and you turn their tap and there's no water. That was their experience here. They went to turn the tap and there was no water at Rephidim. Now, the crazy thing is, is we, we know this and we have to keep it in perspective that the Lord knew there was no water at Rephidim. He knew that he was leading his children, uh, leading his kids to a place where there was no water in the midst of the desert. And obviously water and desert, you know, it's like key to survival, right? So this is a test we're going to see. So far, these tests that the children of Israel have uh, undergone, they failed every one. So what do you think the pattern's going to be here, of course? They're going to fail the test. You ever failed a test? I've failed a few tests in my life. You know, uh, I remember the first time I failed the test. Not the first time. Yeah, well, it was the first time. The only time. <laughs> I failed the test for my class four driver's license. You know, I needed it for both a, a job that I was working in Surrey and for at our church. We had 15 passenger vans. And so I needed to get my class four driver's license so I could drive one of these big vans. And so I was in a bit of a panic to get it done. So I called ICBC and I'm like, I don't care where you have to send me. I want an appointment like in the next day or two. Just anywhere in the lower mainland. So they said, well, we could get you in Maple Ridge the next morning. I said, sweet, I'll take it. So that morning I, I head over to Maple Ridge. I meet the examiner. I start the test. I do the pre-trip inspection. Everything's all good. We hop in the van. He's in the passenger seat. I'm in the driver's seat. He says, hang a right. We pull out of the parking lot. We hang a right. He says, drive to that light, turn left. I drive to the light. It's all clear. I turn left. He says, oh, 
You guys from other municipalities, you do that every time. That's an automatic fail. I'm like, what? What did I do? And, you know, in Maple Ridge, the lights were set up a little different. And, you know, in Surrey, the left-hand turn lane's right there in front of you. And there's a light. And over here, in Maple Ridge, it was over here. I didn't see that there was a light just for the left-hand turn lane. And it was an automatic fail. Failed. I failed lots of tests. Lots of tests the Lord has sent. I don't know about you guys. I know that that's likely true for you. For the Israelites, the thing about this test is that it was an old test repeated. Wait a minute, we've been here before. Once before, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, God led them to a place where there was a water problem. It was bitter. It was bitter. And the children of Israel complained uh, against the Lord and God showed them a lesson. He said, look, I can make the bitterest water sweet. I can take and make the bitterest experience in your life. I can take that and I can make it sweet. If you will apply the, pro- the cross of Jesus Christ to that bitter experience we saw when we were back in that story, that God can show his thirst quest quenching provision to make that which is bittersweet. And so Rephidim and no water to drink is a repeat of an old test here. This is round two. And so they failed it once before. So he tests them again. At the end of verse one says, there was no water for the people to drink. Verse two, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And, the, and Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Bunch of whiners. The Lord's already proved that he could provide water. He's proved that he could provide meat. He's proved that he could provide bread for them. But with no water, what do they do? They begin to quarrel. And they direct, once again, they're quarreling at Moses. And we might, you know, we might find that, you, know, you might kind of find it strange that as, as you read this, that, that the Lord would lead them to this place. Okay, wh- what's the lesson, Lord? Well, the text reveals that as, as they begin to complain, it shows something about the heart. Remember, we've been talking about this through Exodus and these tests. See, the tests don't, aren't designed, well, they're designed to reveal to us things about God and his faithfulness, but they're also, ca- they're also designed to always reveal to us what's in our, our own heart. And, and what we begin to see about the heart of the, the Israelites as they faced this test was that there, that there was an attitude of ingratitude, that there was unbelief, that they were wanting the old life, that they were craving Egypt. They actually say this, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock. See, in their minds, and we've seen this before with these guys, they'd forgotten the harshness of slavery. They'd glamorized once again what it was like to be a slave. And as they forgot the harsh realities of of slavery, uh, they forgot the, you know, the feel of the taskmaster's whip. And we have that tendency to do the same. 
You know, we love to replay in our minds and in our hearts the pleasures of experiencing sin. We, we forget that it was, we were a slave to it and that it mastered us, but we love to replay uh, the pleasure of it and we forget that we were dead when we were in sin. You know, we, we glamorize the way that we enjoyed sin and we fail to remember that we were slaves to our appetites and the desires of our flesh and Jesus set us free. See, tests always come from the Lord. They always come from the Lord. But when we're in the headspace that we're glorifying or glamorizing sin, glorifying or glamorizing the life of slavery, glorifying or glamorizing the life of the flesh... Man, we're in trouble when the test comes. Warren Wiersbe said this, every difficulty that God permits us to encounter will either become a test that makes us better or a temptation that can make us worse. And it's our attitude which determines which it will be. See, when my focus is on the flesh, when my focus is on the appetites of my body, my comfort, Maybe when my place is in that, that heart where it's, uh, that my heart is in that place where it's still in, in Egypt, so to speak, where I'm thinking about the old life before Christ and some of, you know, just glorifying it and the test comes. In unbelief, I will begin to complain and murmur and blame God. And temptation will rob me of the opportunity uh, that God has placed in front of me uh, to learn. I'll, I'll miss the opportunity for spiritual growth. But if I come to that test and I, I trust God and I let him have his way and with faith I look for the provision of God in the midst of whatever the storm is, in the midst of whatever the trial is, in the midst of whatever the test is, Rather than work against me, the scripture says that test will begin to work for me. As, as Paul said, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And see, when your heart is in Egypt, when your heart is in this world, anger and, anger and, 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 and bitterness and unbelief will cause you to do things that will make your situation worse. You take the test and, and, and you'll kibosh the whole thing, man. And then you'll, you just get yourself in this worse spot. See, the Israelites, what did they want to do? They wanted to stone Moses, we're about to read. We don't have water. We don't have water. I know. Let's, let's come up with a logical solution. We'll murder someone. <laughs> we'll stone the leader. That'll fix everything, right? I mean, you see the problem. There's no logic in that solution, right? Murder. That's going to make things better, right? What the Israelites failed to see with the eyes of and the heart of faith is that, that when you follow the Lord, his resources do not fail. When you follow Jesus Christ, there is no shortage of, of provision. Though you may not be able to see where it's going to come from, God will provide. And when we come to, you know, a, a test and we reach this place where we've come to the, the limits of our ability, you know, I would say this, as I was thinking about the story, when you come to the place where, you, where you've 
come to the limits of your ability, the end of your rope, so to speak, you're, you're really standing on the precipice of the miraculous. You're standing in the place where, where God can reveal the function of how his kingdom works and how he deals with an economy that's not limited to how we think. That with him, nothing is impossible. He, 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 de- he deals in the realm of possibility. You know, when we're weak, he's strong. The apostle Paul, you know, he said that he learned to glory in his weakness because there, when, when he was at his very end, he discovered God would always demonstrate his power. So he said, man, I, I, I glory in my weakness because there, then I am strong. You know, when we uh, arrived at Zuni Narrows at the campsite there on the men's kayak trip, there was a sign posted that there was a cougar in the area. I'm like, sweet. I'm a West Coast boy, so that don't bother me for a second. <laughs> Made some guys nervous, but not me. It's just the honest truth. And then I walked around the corner and I saw, oh, there's a bear sign right there. So I'm like, all right, rapids, danger, cougars, bears. This is a man's trip. Let's go get some fish. That was my thought. So, you know, uh, but Joan and I, we climbed into our tent that night and we were just talking and he's a little nervous just because we're in the bush and away from home. And uh, so we, we, we prayed together and I said, bud, I got to remind you, you know that God's a camper because his word says that he camps and camps around those who fear him. And so there's a tent here and there's angels present and the Lord is with us. And so we don't need to fear while we camp here. Let's enjoy ourselves and have a good time. God is present with us. Might seem dangerous, but God is with us. You know, when you talk about danger, the most dangerous thing a follower of God, a follower of Jesus Christ can face is this. The most dangerous thing in your life is this, self-sufficiency. The most dangerous thing in the Christian life is self-sufficiency. It's not the place of self, you know, it's, when I'm in the place of self-sufficiency, I'm not in the spot where I'm thinking, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, the the heart of man is very susceptible to pride and self-worship. The heart of man is quick to forget that sufficiency comes from Christ. That my sufficiency comes from Jesus. The Bible tells us that God will not give his glory to another. And you know, when bread is raining down from heaven and all I got to do is step out the door of my tent and collect it every day, I face this danger where self and self-confidence can set in and, and I'm quick to forget that my sufficiency comes from God. That my sufficiency Uh, comes from Jesus. Rephidim, this place of rest, was designed to counteract self-sufficiency. To not let the hearts of the people rest. Oh, the bread's there. I don't need to seek God. Oh, it's going to be there for 40 years. Ho-hum and slip into that, that lazy 
life of faith. Rephidim was a place to counteract and check all the uprisings of self-sufficiency. So you in a test? So Lord got you in a test this week? He's working to counteract all the hard attitudes of self-sufficiency. See, my resources and your resources and our abilities, they have their limits. And when there is a hint of self-sufficiency uprising against the Lord, the Lord will lead you to a place where where you recognize the narrowness and the the limited extent of your own resources and ability. So, you know, forget cougars and bears and all that stuff. Self-sufficiency is the most dangerous thing you face. And God's goal is to bring you into this place of greater Jesus dependency. And so at the murderous grumblings of the Israelites, Moses comes to the end of himself as well. In verse 4, he says this, Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with these people? He's at the end of himself. What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And so, you know, I would say this. It's a blessed thing when the providence of God leads you to a place where you are face to face with the end of yourself. We don't like it. In our human flesh, I don't like to come to the end of myself. But when we finally cry out from that place, what do I do now, God? We're in a good spot. Verse 5 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, I like this. There's a good principle of leadership here. He said, go ahead of the people. They're ready to stone you. They're, they're murmuring. Just move on ahead and, and begin to follow what I'm telling you to do. And Moses is told to take up with him some of the elders, but to take in his hand the staff with which he struck the Nile. We remember this staff. It's the staff that was turned into a serpent when it was thrown before Pharaoh. That serpent swallowed the serpents of Pharaoh's magicians. And when Moses reached out and took hold of the tail of that serpent, it hardened in his hand and it became a staff again. This is the same staff with which he struck the waters of the Nile and and they became blood. It's the same staff that he used to part the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could pass on dry ground. So go ahead of the people, take some of the elders and take the staff of God in your hand. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And so Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Incredible, incredible picture here. Credible story that we're reading. I mean, of what happened. And, and beyond that, the symbolism that's in here. I mean, it's It's awesome incredible water doesn't come from rocks i don't know if you knew that you know if you go split gospel rock over there water's not going to come out i can tell you right now so, so this is miraculous provision from heaven and and this verse i would say this man you can preach the gospel from this verse this preaches the gospel not only that this verse teaches the triune nature of our god that he's a trinity God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, first of all, you know, the miraculous happened. Like I said, water, water doesn't come from a rock. Now, lest you in your mind think a little fountain. Bleep. Come on, man. Two to three million people. This isn't a fountain. 
It's not a trickle. It's not even a stream. It's a river. It was a river. This is not the garden hose, man. This is fountains from heaven, okay? I want you to turn with me. They flowed from, they flowed from that rock. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Keep your finger in Exodus chapter 17. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because Paul explains to us something about this story that's very important. You there? Verse 1. He says this. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, manna. He's talking about the Exodus, verse 3. And they all ate the same spiritual food. Are you with me in verse 4? And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul tells us something about what is happening here. That this rock in Exodus chapter 17 is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how to interpret this. I don't know what to do with this in my head. But look at what Paul says. He said the rock followed them. Does that mean it rolled along with the camp and the water just kept? I don't know what that means. But Paul says the rock followed them. Okay? Now back to chapter 17. With this thought in mind, Paul identifies for us that this rock in Exodus chapter 17 is a picture of Jesus. And the Lord says uh, to Moses in verse 6, Behold. Behold this, Moses. Moses, you need to stop and think about this, and it's a good word for us. So we're going to park on this verse for a little while. Behold. You need to take in what, God, what I am saying right here. So here's the picture. The Lord says, I will stand on the rock. The position the Father takes is one of judgment. He stands on the rock there. And Moses, who is a picture of the law, takes this staff and he's to strike the rock the staff of course represents the power of God it also represents in a sense that serpent it kind of has a dual nature it's a it's a, a picture of how Satan would strike the heel of the Messiah and the Messiah would crush his head The staff is also a symbol of the judgment of God, the law of God against Jesus Christ. And so the rock is struck with the staff of Moses and it splits and water flows. And we can't help but be reminded of Jesus hanging on a cross as we read in the New Testament. Satan saw that as victory and little did he understand that Jesus was enduring the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God against the sins of the world. When the rock was struck, water flowed out of that rock. And when Jesus was pierced in the side, what flowed out of his side? Blood and water on the cross. And as that rock in the desert provided water for millions of people, so the cross of Jesus Christ has provided life for us. Jesus said this. 
John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. He said, the, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, see, see, Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, you can preach the gospel from Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. Of course, th that water just pictures the life that was poured out from the cross for us. Not, not only for the Israelites in the desert, but from the cross. And, and we can see the, the, you know, the picture of the triune God here as well. You know, um, God the Father stood on the rock, his wrath on Jesus Christ. The rock is Jesus, and from the rock flowed uh, living waters, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, uh, the gospel, John records this in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. It says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet they had not, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so here in the picture of the water is a picture of the spirit. God, the father standing on the rock, Jesus, the rock poured out from Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Isn't it awesome? Exodus is the best book in the Bible for teaching the nature of God, about the nature of God's uh, trinity. Think about this. Exodus chapter 16, bread came down from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. Exodus chapter 16 is, a, is see, bread had to come down from heaven. Jesus had to be incarnated so that he could be smitten on the cross. Exodus chapter 16 has to come before Exodus chapter 17. And that's a, bread has to come down from heaven so that it can be smitten, so that life can flow out. And that's the picture, Jesus in the midst of this story. And, and once again, as we've been seeing all the way through Exodus, the water coming from the rock, as all the miracles that God does, is a complete act of the grace of God. Certainly we can say, you know, the Israelites didn't deserve any such divine provision, did they? I mean, they're complaining, they're murmuring, their hearts are in Egypt, and with their minds and with their mouths, they're plotting murder. They're ready to stone Moses. And yet in the midst of that, God poured out his unmerited favor and his grace. It reminds me of Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. Exodus chapter 17 verse 7 says this. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord not among us? So Massa means temptation or testing. Meribah means strife or contention. Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So, so much for the place of rest, right? 
You ever ended up in one of those places of rest and then there was a fight? You weren't expecting to come. It came, uh, you know, the place of rest becomes a place of war. Uh, a place where maybe Satan wants to capitalize on the fact that God's people have their guard down for a little bit. You know, it's interesting that, that Satan or even the flesh, I would say, will often make a play when people have experienced a great blessing from God. When you've experienced his, his grace, his presence, and outpouring of your spirit. Uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was filled with the Holy Spirit and my friend said to me, you be ready now because <laughs> Satan's going to come and he's going to attack you. And, and that person was right. There, there was an outpouring of grace, a blessing, an outpouring of the spirit, and there was a battle that had to happen, a war. Now, what's the nature of the attack? Well, we, we gain a little bit of understanding about this attack and the attacks that you and I face when we consider who Amalek is. Who is Amalek? Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Remember him? Esau, you know, Isaac, the son of Abraham, fathered two sons, Jacob and Esau. Who was the older? Esau, right? Jacob... Uh, was the younger. And uh, although Jacob was far from perfect, Jacob had a heart that desired God. He, he, he was a, a man who still wanted uh, to know God. Esau, on the other hand, is a, the epitome of a man who lived for the appetites and the desires of his flesh. Okay? Rather than the things of the spirit, he lived for the things of the flesh. We see that in the fact that Esau sold his birthright he despises birthright for a bowl of soup. Like, seriously? You passed up the blessing of your father for a bowl of soup. So he was a man that was controlled by the appetites of his flesh, overcome by those desires. And, and so here's Amalek. He's a grandson of Esau. His descendants are called the Amalekites. We come across them lots of times in the scripture. And always in the scripture, the Amalekites are this picture. You might even want to write this beside Amalek's name, battle with the flesh. This has to do with a battle with the flesh, okay? And so here, there's been an outpouring of the spirit. There's been an outpouring of water. Now there's going to be a battle with the flesh, a battle with Amalek. And it's a common ex experience, you know, occurrence. When God does a great work in your life, a work of the spirit, then typically the flesh rears its head. You know, I think about before Jesus, life before Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Dead in sin, uh, separated from God, separated from life, separated from eternal life, separated from spiritual life. Uh, by nature, a child of wrath, Ephesians chapter two says. By nature, that's, that's life without Jesus. Then, Someone came and told you about a rock that was split for you. A savior that was crucified and his blood was poured out and how he purchased your redemption on a cross. That, that like manna that came down from heaven, he became God incarnate. He clothed himself in human flesh. In his body, he bore the wrath of God and the sin of mankind as he hung on a tree. 
Uh, God found him guilty as he took that place as my substitute, as your substitute, and he died for our sin. He died on that cross. His side was pierced and blood and water flowed from him. And when in faith, you know, we put our faith in him and we drank from the fountain of living water, it became in us a well, a spring welling up to eternal life. And the fact is this. I was dead and I was born again. You were dead and you were born again. And now dead to sin, you're to live for God. It's the most, isn't it the most wonderful reality you can know? To know Jesus. But here's the thing. There's this, I don't know how to describe it. I thought, man, I don't know how to describe it. There's this duality to following Jesus that you're going to know about a second I try to explain this. Where I'm, I'm alive to God, I can live for the things of the Spirit, and yet at the same time, I, I fantasize and I glamorize the life I left behind. My heart goes there sometimes. Sometimes my heart's here following God, and other times it's here down in this place. You know, and when it's down in this place, I've, I, I've forgotten the harsh realities of sin. I've forgotten what it was like to have the taskmaster whip me. And though I love God and I'm alive unto God, it's like I'm chained to this corpse of a man who I once was. You know what I mean? It's like, don't you feel like that sometimes? You're like dragging this stinking corpse around with you all the time. And sometimes it's like a zombie that comes alive. And the old life clings to you. The reality is this. Um... Because I live in this world, because you live in this world, we drag that corpse until we pass into the presence of God or until Jesus comes again. The corpse is there with us. We drag the corpse of who we were before Jesus. And so I would say this, and you know this, and more and more it's my heart to preach this. Following Jesus is not a cakewalk. Have you figured that out yet? Cakewalks are for kid parties, man. This is warfare. This is a life of faith. I, I don't ever want to give you the false bill of sale. Look, the gospel's not a country song played backwards, right? You don't get your dog back and your house back and your truck back and your girlfriend back. Like, that is not the promise of the gospel. It's not a walk in the park. Especially when you realize I'm dragging this thing around who I used to be and the appetites and the habits of sin, though they be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, they've left their mark in a sense. I don't know how to say that. But I think you know what I mean. You know what? When you consider the story of the Israelites, do you know that there's no record that they fought any battles when they were in Egypt? No battles in Egypt. It wasn't until they were redeemed from slavery that they had to learn how to fight. And, and when, you know, you were in the life of sin, you didn't have battles. You just did what the master told you to do. You're the master. What's the flesh say? Okay, I'm going to do it. But then, 
You began to follow Jesus and you discover, I have to battle this. I don't want to live for that enemy. I want to live for Jesus. And, and now it's fight time. We're going to learn to go here. And you need, the reality is this, you know, you need blessings from God, but you need battles. Because if life was just a blessing, if Christianity was just a blessing, you'd slide into that dangerous place of self-sufficiency where you're, where you're too confident and too cocky and too comfortable to trust God. And so we have to develop a, a heart of faith that says, okay, we got a test here. We got a battle here. Well, there is a blessing here and I'm going to look for it. And I'm going to follow Jesus. And so here comes Amalek for the Israelites. He's a picture of the flesh. Let me remind you a little bit about Amalek, the Amalekites. Gideon, along with the Midianites, met the Amalekites. King Saul, though he battled and defeated the Amalekites, he didn't go all the way. He let their king live. He let their king live. And Saul is a picture of a man who made a compromise with the flesh in that battle. The Lord said, you kill the Amalekites. And he let the king live. When you're battling with the flesh, you don't let the king live. You kill the Amalekites. The Amalekite king that he allowed to live was a man by the name of Agag. One of Agag's descendants reared his head. His name was Haman. He showed up in Babylon and he tried to wipe out uh, the people of God. Had it not been for Esther, you know, and what God did, there was a miracle there as well. Look, the flesh is not your friend. Its appetite for sin will destroy you. And if you give life to that corpse like King Saul, it will be your end. And so if the Israelites, you think about the Israelites, if they were to drink water from the rock, then they had to learn to do battle with Amalek. And if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have to learn to do battle with the flesh. And if we're to walk according to the spirit, we must learn to do battle with the flesh. You know, fight the flesh. Cultivate the life of the, the, the life of the spirit, but murder the flesh. I like that saying. Murder the flesh. In verse 9, we read this. So Moses said to Joshua, first time Joshua comes on the scene. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So like I said, first time we meet Joshua in the scripture, um, Joshua was not the name that he was given at birth. The, the Bible says that his name at birth was Hoshia, which means salvation. Moses gave him a new name, which we know in scripture means there was a change in his identity and his character. And Moses called him Joshua. And that name means the Lord is salvation. The Hebrew equivalent of that is what? Jesus, right? Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. So the, the picture is that Joshua will do battle with Amalek and Moses will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God uh, in his hand. Verse 10. 
So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So here's Moses, staff of God in his hands, his arms raised up on top of the hill, Joshua down in the valley battling against Amalek. And the picture of Moses there is the picture of prayer, hands raised. Paul said men should raise their hands in prayer to God. I don't know if that's a position that you take in prayer often, but I encourage you, raise your hands when you pray. Raise your hands in prayer to the Lord. He's got the staff of God in his hands. I, th I think of the staff in this sense too as uh, the word of God in a sense, you know. See, those are the primary weapons when you're in battle, the word of God and prayer. Those are the weapons of the man of God. And when the prayer stopped, something interesting happened. <laughs> Down in the valley, the victory began to slide away and Amalek began to have victory. See, prayer was the key to victory and prayer is the key to victory when you're dealing with the flesh. <laughs> when the arms come down, the flesh starts to win. But when the arms go up, Joshua, Jesus, begins to win. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. Doesn't that sound like prayer? Pr prayer can be a wearying thing. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. You think about Moses, this man. The Bible tells us that when they did finally reach, um, well, when he came to the end of his life, after 40 years of this journey through the wilderness, the Bible says that his eye was not weak and that his strength had not faded. So what's the deal with the arms coming down? Because there's no problem with Moses' strength. But I'll tell you what's tough, prayer. There's nothing harder than the place of prayer. You know that and I know that. Let's, I mean, let's be honest here. There is nothing harder to do than to pray. To, to pull time out to, to go into the prayer closet, to get alone for a walk, to get alone with God and to get down on your knees and to raise it. It's the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. Look, you could, church is easy. Witnessing is easy. Reading your Bible is easy. Prayer is the hardest thing. And, and even Moses grew weary battling in the place of prayer because prayer is hard work. The strongest man can lose his strength in the place of prayer. And you need, an, in prayer, you need Aaron and her with you. You need other people so that you can gather together and continue to pray even when you're weak. Man, I encourage you, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, prayer. Come join us. You know, in seven years at CTK, this has been the best summer of prayer ever, I got to tell you. There's usually 10 to 14 of us. You know, there were summers where it was like one, two, maybe three. We've been meeting with the Lord on Wednesday nights and I'm so thankful for it. It's been awesome. Moses, arms held up by Aaron and Hur. Verse 13 says, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
I love the picture of Joshua as Jesus. See, Moses didn't battle Amalek. Moses lifted his voice. His voice rose up to God and Joshua defeated Amalek with the sword. <laughs> you know, I think about that, that thought and I think, man, you know, Moses is this picture of the law in scripture. You know that you cannot legalize victory over the flesh? You ever been in a, in a legalistic church? You know that. That as soon as you try to legalize victory over the flesh and you make rules, we don't, you know, smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls. Who do. And the more rules you put in place, the worse the failure comes in, victor- in the battle against the flesh. It, it's not rules that win the battle against the flesh and laws. Moses is on the hillside. Prayer is raised. Do you know who wins the victory against the flesh? Jesus Christ. You know, you say, man, I I cannot get victory over my flesh. My friend, exactly. Send Joshua in. You lift your hands in prayer and you send Jesus in. And Jesus, he is the living word. He will take the sword of his word and he'll kill Amalek. You can imagine... You know, Joshua down on the battlefield in the midst of the skirmish and him looking back on the hillside and Moses' arms are up. Things start to go wrong. Looking back up on the hillside and Moses' arms are down. And this pattern, he keeps looking back. Are the arms up? Are the arms down? What's going on? where's, Where's the prayers? But then, you know, just picture this thought when Aaron and her took that place. And Joshua looked back onto the hillside and what did he see? Three men standing and arms stretched out like this. A a picture of the hill of Calvary and Jesus hanging on the cross with two men crucified on either side of him. It would have looked just like that to him. See, in our battle with the flesh, we have to keep our focus on the cross. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. See, if you, if you fight with the flesh on your own, you are done for. This is Joshua's battle. It's Jesus' battle. Lift your voice in prayer. Psalm says, I, I love the Lord. I love the Lord because in the day of my trouble, he heard my voice. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book, in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. What a wonderful promise. Listen, do you know any Amalekites? Ever been to visit their country? (laughs) I've never met an Amalekite. That's because the Lord wiped them out. The Lord wiped them out. And what a wonderful promise that is for you and I because he's going to wipe out the flesh. You battle the flesh, one day that battle will be over and Jesus will have total victory on your behalf. There'll be no, don't you look forward to that day? Don't you look forward to that day when you're set free from the battle with the flesh? Fully alive unto God. 
fully walking in the power of the Spirit, those old appetites totally gone. Verse 15, Moses, it says, Moses built an altar. He worshiped. And he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, that's it. The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi, name of God, compound name of God. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You see who does battle with Amalek? It's the Lord. This is the Lord's war. This is the Lord's victory. I love that in verse 16 there, it says that, or verse 15, that Moses built an altar. See, there was an outpouring of the spirit. There was a battle with the flesh and there was victory because of prayer and because of Jesus. And the proper response was this, worship God. He took stones and he began to build a place and make a place in his life where he would worship. And he, and he said, he, he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. You know, think of ancient armies of old. They would go out and, I don't know, with a horseman in the front or whatever it looked like, but they would go out under a banner of their king, under the flag of their nation. You know, our Canadian soldiers, you know, they, they wear the, the banner of who they fight for on their sleeves, on their equipment. They mark the Canadian flag. It's their banner. We fight under this. Moses said, I got a banner. And it's the Lord. He is my flag and him I will follow into the place of, the war, into the place of war. Jehovah Nisi. Isn't God good? He's going to give us victory over the flesh. Let's pray this morning. Why don't you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team.